Welcome to the Unconventional Dyad Podcast, where you'll find broad topics, an unconventional dyad, and one shared goal. Educating ourselves through challenging and engaging conversations. Your hosts are Carly and Laura, two graduate students and friends committed to having discussions that are real, raw, and unpolished. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for tuning in to episode number 13 of the Unconventional Dyad podcast. Today we have Dr. Andrea Medeiros with us. Dr. Medeiros is a clinical psychologist in private practice in Brunswick, Maine. She works primarily with couples in troubled relationships using emotion-focused couples therapy, and she also works with individuals with complex trauma histories. She is interested in relationships, love, and attachment, which were the foci of her doctoral dissertation. She has spent much of her free time studying Gilmore Girls, and you can find her videos on YouTube. We will put the link in the show notes for this episode. Today, we discuss her journey into clinical psychology and her experiences during her training. Dr. Medeiros identifies as bisexual and polyamorous, and we discuss her experiences during her training and what other training programs could do to be more inclusive for a variety of individuals. We discuss her interest in Gilmore Girls, and she breaks down the relationships for us a little bit in the episode. Thank you for your continued support, and we hope you enjoy the podcast. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really delighted to get a chance to speak with you. Um, Before we get started, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and maybe share parts of your identity that you think might be important for our listeners to know about? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. This is uh, my first time being on a podcast, so it's all very exciting to me. Um, So identity-wise, I thought about this before we talked, and I guess, you know, my stereotypical identities or whatever um, is that I identify as bisexual um, and polyamorous and also white and cis and female. Um, But personally, I guess I identify as kind of a nerd. (laughs) Um, I highly value like intellectual curiosity and excitement about interests and things like that. And even though I'm not technically a student anymore. I think I probably always will be a student and then still mm-hmm. have that mentality very much so even though I'm a couple of years out of school now. Mm-hmm. Um, professionally, so I'm a clinical psychologist. I work primarily with couples um, and individuals with complex trauma. Um, I'm working lately on augmenting this with writing. So I'm currently working on a book about ideas about falling in love and relationships and how that changes throughout the lifespan. And so recently I went to the APA conference um, and I talked to some publishers and they were saying, basically, if you wanna sell a book, you have to have an audience. And so you should you know, get a YouTube following or an Instagram following. And I do not speak Instagram. So I started making a YouTube series instead. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has sort of totally overtaken me I am doing the YouTube series way more than I am doing the writing of the book I'm supposed to be building an audience for. So about like maybe a third of my time is spent doing that and um, kind of 
researching things for that. And the rest of my time is clinical work. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so nice to hear that you're doing something outside of really that professional psychologist identity. I find that really fascinating, people going outside of themselves and doing really neat, different things. And It's been really fun. It's sort of been surprising how much fun it's been. Yeah. yeah. Can you share a little bit about your clinical work? What types of populations do you work with? Yeah, so I work about 70% couples, maybe 30% individuals right now. Um, I live in Maine, which means that my clientele is like primarily white, which is too bad. Um, and most of my couples are straight, although not entirely. Um, I do live in sort of college town, so I get a little bit of, you know, not heteronormative <laughs> population, but... Um, and so I do a couple therapy called emotionally focused therapy. Um, it's like the humanistic version of couple therapy, I guess, where it's a lot about attachment theory and a lot about, you know, kind of joining the couple where they are mm -hmm. and figuring out what the conflicts look like for them. Um, so it's, it's interesting in that it both has like a model of, what you're looking at, right? Like it has a kind of a theoretical base, I guess. And the entire way of practicing it is like very fluid and, you know, just being very where they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, what What university is in Brunswick? Um, Bowdoin. Oh, Bowdoin Bowdoin's College. there, okay. Yeah. And I would imagine that that's primarily a white university. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. 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 It's very kind of uh, wealthy also. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's the typical age that you that you see in your practice? Um, I guess like mid 20s to mid 30s, although mm -hmm. I do have quite a bit of people outside that range. Mm -hmm. That's the most common. I run a couple of DBT groups also, and most of the population there is around that age group. Mm -hmm. You know, I am curious about your interest in the relationships within the Gilmore Girls series. <laughs> and I'm reflecting on the age group that you primarily work with. And I'm wondering if it's a little bit too late for that or a little, <laughs> little too early for it's that. Too early one of those. Yeah. That's kind of funny. I, um, yeah, I'm very fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by relationships in general. I think Amy Sherman Palladino, the writer of Gilmore Girls, writes like a great argument. She's so good at writing fights where um, you understand where both people are coming from, right? And so you can't really pick a side. Um, so I really like that about that. And I don't know about the age group thing. It seems like it's gotten like a renaissance since going on Netflix a few years ago. Everyone's discovering it now. And so it seems to be having kind of a second life. Mm -hmm. cool. I was a bit of a late bloomer to Gilmore Girls. I discovered it um, in my master's program probably 2011 or 2012. So I was late to the game, oh, yeah. but I'm, I'm glad I attended the game because <laughs> it was such a fascinating series. It is. I want to know everything about <laughs> your interest in it and really your interest in the relationship, di relationship dynamics within this series. Can you share just a little bit about what you... Totally. What you think I about, yeah. I'd love to talk about Gilmore Girls for the rest of my entire life. So 
um, I think I started watching it a little bit, a little bit after the beginning. So somewhere like in 2003 or four or somewhere in there. Um, and I've been watching it pretty much on a loop since like, I watch it almost every day. I am <laughs> obsessed with it. And I told my partner once that if I ever like got sent to solitary confinement, you know, I think it would probably be like 24 hours or less before I started thinking Lorelai and Rory were real people. Like, mm-hmm. It's pretty much, you know, like locked into my brain. I can watch an episode like in my mind a lot. And I do that a lot when I'm trying to fall asleep. Um, But I think the relational dynamics are just so fascinating. Like, so for anyone who hasn't watched the show, right, there's the mother and daughter that are the central characters. And then there's a lot of emphasis on um, the grandparents and the dynamic between the daughter and the grandparents who she's been kind of estranged from for several years at the beginning of the show and then the different relationship between the grandparents and the daughter right so um there's a lot to to focus on there and then that doesn't even get into like the romantic relationships which are a whole other ball of wax um there's a podcast called Gilmore Guys that I listen to like a lot it's hilarious and it's a big time investment like I listened to the whole thing and their episodes are not short. Like they're maybe like three or four hours long. It's crazy. So, um, but it's, it's very funny. Like they're comedians, the people that do it. So um, I forgot where I was going with that. The Gilmore guys thing. Oh, you were talking about uh, romantic relationships. Oh, right. Series. Right. So there was a lot of argument with like with the guests, you know, like which team they were on with regard to Rory's boyfriends. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of the the big thing in like the fandom is arguing about the boyfriends and who was good and who was bad. And I am an unpopular <laughs> person with regard to that. So she yeah. has like three kind of main boy friends mm-hmm. throughout the time. So she starts off with Dean, who's like the good yep. guy. You know, he's like a carpenter and he's like you know mm-hmm. working class and very like good-hearted and he plays sports you know he's like a sort of hometown boy jock sort of guy and then her second boyfriend Jess is like a bad boy rebel right he comes in like sweeps her off her feet with his views on Kerouac and like you know his book you know what do you call that when you like write in the margins he like steals her books and writes in the margins <laughs> Um, so he kind of steals her away, then abruptly leaves her, which is why I hate him. And then she goes to college and she meets this guy, Logan, who's like the rich, you know, from the grandparents world. He's he's mm-hmm. like the rich kid and they have all the money and he's very like smooth and most people hate him, but he is my favorite. What what about him is, is do you like? He's very situationally aware like he can pick up on the dynamics that are going on very easily and like he's I think very straightforward about who he is and what he wants and he cares a lot about her um about Rory and he like can just come into a situation and read the room pretty much instantly and I think that is really cool and like a good skill to have and he makes him better at being with her I think than the other two yeah you know what I found what I really liked about the series was the importance of 
grandparents and Mm -hmm. you know something that we don't talk about a lot is kind of is the family unit and can you talk a little bit about the importance of bringing those grandparents into the series and really why that might be a little bit different than other series that we see on TV? Yeah, um, I think it is really important and it's not something that we talk about much. Like you're very focused on the nuclear family in America. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because like these grandparents aren't really involved in the way that we think of good grandparents, you know, like, I tend to think of the good kind of grandparents as being there throughout the whole childhood and, you know, being like kind of the, the babysitter and, um, and that's not really the case here. So they're pretty much estranged from Lorelai and Rory until Rory is almost 16. That's Mm -hmm. when it's just the series starts and they sort of get back involved for like a contrived reason. So, um, you know, money for money reasons, basically. And that's another thing that the show talks about all the time is class and money mm-hmm. um, and how that plays into everything. But they really do form a pretty strong bond with Rory. The bond with Lorelai is still a little fraught kind of throughout the whole time. They somewhat reconvene and like get closer, but there's always that barrier there where with Rory, they are just totally like love her and are proud of her. Um, and I think that's a big bolster for her like Mm -hmm. to have an extended family after growing up with just like a single mom and no other family around like that really changes her life and you know one of the big like through lines of the series is that um their money changes her life right they pay for her high school they pay for her college and that's all true and she certainly takes a different path because of those financial connections and I think, though, that their love and support also changes her life, that, that she feels like she has a family name and, like, a, a base that's safe to go from, or she doesn't really, she does have that somewhat at the beginning, but not so much as she does later with them involved, I think. Mm-hmm. I'm just reflecting back to my clinical training and very rarely do we talk about the influence that grandparents and extended Mm -hmm. family have on an individual. And I don't really know why that is. Do you have any ideas of why we don't really talk about that in our clinical training? I mean, whiteness is a big part of it, I think. Like individualism. Individualism, like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a it's a very American white thing to not have mm-hmm. grandparents be heavily involved. I think in most other cultures they are, mm-hmm. um, and so we had when we started psychology, right? We had mostly white men that were writing the books and mm-hmm. forming the theories and doing the science, right? So all of our research is heavily slanted in that direction. Um, And like American society is that way too. Like we talk about, you know, being self-sufficient and not eating other people and having, you know, independence and there's no view of healthy interdependence, like none. We don't have any idea of what that's like. And I run into that all the time in couple therapy. Right, where people are like, I shouldn't rely on my partner that much. And when really, like, 
you're totally designed to do that. You know, like we humans are social creatures. We need other people to help us regulate feelings and to do all kinds of things. We can't be independent. We're really setting ourselves up to fail from the beginning with that whole ideology. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me again what, what your book is about? Is it about your, your interest in psychology? Is it about specific uh, facets within psychology? Um, it's about falling in love particularly, but okay. Uh-huh. So I wrote my dissertation about falling in love and sort of compared mm-hmm. it to being like sort of like a mental illness <laughs> because uh-huh. like it really has a disruptive effect on life, right? It makes you kind of have trouble functioning, and mm-hmm. um, so that was kind of where it started as I was trying to kind of turn that into a, a book, and then it sort of evolved into like our ideas about what love will be like, what our partners will be like. So in attachment theory, that's, you know, internal working models of um, our family and in like what relationships are supposed to be like, what our expectations are. Um, But I'm trying to kind of expand that idea into ideas about like what love is, what a soulmate is, like what love should feel like what sex has to do with it, that kind of thing. And so I'm doing it in sort of like a lifespan way, like what are our initial ideas and then how do they evolve throughout adolescence and then like, and so forth, kind of through our first romantic relationships, do they change? How do they change? That kind of thing. That is fascinating. I'm wondering, do you want to share a little bit about what you've written so far and where you hope to go with the book? I think mostly what I've written so far is like the falling in love part. Um, Okay. A lot of the rest is sort of like sketched, you know, like I started thinking about the book and I was like, oh, I should write this. This is going to be so great. And then I went to APA and they were like, you can't do that. You have to like build an audience. Mm-hmm. And I got distracted by the whole Gilmore Girls video thing. <laughs> um, but like kind of my ideas about it so far are mm-hmm. that. Um, so in terms of like attachment, you know, you can have your attachment stays pretty much the same throughout the lifespan, right? But you can have what we call a corrective experience where Mm -hmm. you change it, right? You change the way that your attachment system functions to some degree. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what EFT is about is like creating a corrective experience with, so you can find your partner to be a reliable, accessible, responsive person. Um, so my idea, I guess, is what happens if you have that in early adulthood, right? Does that change? Even if that relationship doesn't end up working out, like, does that change the way that you look for relationships after that or what you think they're going to be like? And if you don't have that, then what does that mean, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, can you have a corrective experience in the wrong direction? Which I don't know, actually, the answer to that question. I would guess you can, mm-hmm. right? Like if you have a secure attachment to begin with and then you have an abusive relationship, then what do you think that people are going to do? Right. So yeah, that's kind of like the ideas I have about it. I haven't written that much of it though, I'll be honest. I feel like when you're writing something like that, granted, I've never written a book, but I have written thesis and um, dissertations mm-hmm. and I find that a lot of the work is done up front, thinking about it, thinking through ideas, maybe taking some notes. And I feel like the writing part 
tends to come off pretty easy once you have a pretty good idea where you want to go with yeah. it. So hopefully that's the case. That's certainly that's <laughs> the case with the dissertation. So hopefully it will be that way with yeah. this too. Mm -hmm. What have you written about? Yeah, so I I am also interested in attachment theory, and mm -hmm. my dissertation is on attachment theory cool. specifically in um, in those with eating disorders. So looking at how attachment mediates fear of termination, oh, so wow. fear of terminating from treatment. Mm -hmm. So it's maybe not exactly kind of the framework that you're using, but it sounds pretty similar. It does, yeah, so, that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. So. I want to hear a little bit about your training experiences. So um, on the Google Doc that I shared with you, uh, it sounds like you had some training experiences that were a bit device mm -hmm. device it. but I'm, I'm wondering if you would be willing to share some of those experiences for our listeners. Sure. So um, I had a four-year program for my PsyD, um, and it's one of those where it's like, it could be four or five years, depending on your internship. Um, and so I was lucky enough to get um, what we call it a consortium internship, which I don't think other places do much. At least a lot of people seem to have never heard of it, but basically it splits the fifth year internship into two part-time years, and then you can do them in years three and four. So you graduate a year early. Um, so I did that. And my school was very like ideologically divided. Um, mm -hmm. So we had, you know, the learning theory, CBT people, and then we had the humanistic Jungian people. Um, mm -hmm. And it was very like, I don't know what the right word is, but hostile isn't quite the right word. It wasn't that far, but mm -hmm. it was like the CBT, CBT folks clearly felt like they were superior Right, they who are the evidence-based ones, which, oh my God, they're driving me crazy. It makes me so mad. I'm just like, is there anything more evidence-based than the therapeutic relationship? Because if so, I would like to see that research because I have must have missed it. But anyway, whatever. Clearly, you can see which side of the divide I fell on. Um, <laughs> but so there was a lot of like kind of infighting like that. Like they were the real evidence-based ones. We were like the woo-woo, not science, you know, just people who think that it's an art or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and so it felt often from my side of it that we were fighting kind of like an uphill battle, right? Like that CBT was winning, that evidence-based treatment was generally like the thing and mm -hmm. humanistic was dying. Like, yeah. um, and, you know, forget even like, weirder things like gestalt therapy or existentialist philosophy right mm -hmm. like none of that even exists like you have learning theory you have psychodynamic and then you're done and so yeah it just always felt a little bit like I was fighting for something that was dying and like yeah. I was really scared about that because it felt like the soul of therapy to me was at risk and mm -hmm. now I feel a little bit less like that. I think it's not quite as dire as it seemed because I was in this like really restricted environment where that's all I could see was like the divide at our school. And it was very, mm -hmm. you know, maybe 80%, 20% or something like that. When in the real yeah. world, I don't think it's really like that. Yeah, I am quite curious about what other schools 
are like. I know mm-hmm. that ours, I wouldn't say that there's a lot of div- divisiveness in our program, but certainly people who uh, really only abide by one or two models of therapy. Um, I feel like for the most part, the Midwest is very much CBT oriented. Mm-hmm. So I, I do, I, to some extent, I, I don't necessarily feel like an outcast necessarily, but I do feel like I have to go out and prove something right. yeah. <laughs> because I do a different type of therapy. So I do primarily psychodynamic mm-hmm. psychotherapy and there aren't many of us who do that here, um, which is quite unfortunate. Really is. However, yeah. And I, most of the internship sites I'm applying to are on the East coast. There's a few in California, but most are mm-hmm. out your way. Yeah. So, yeah, I think in my there's still quite a bit of cbt but there's also a lot of people who say they're integrative right so yeah yeah um most people i think that i've met since grad school do some kind of combination of several things Mm -hmm. yeah that's very similar to how our program is too i feel like the way that our program is structured it, it kind of allows for you to be a little bit more integrated um but yeah, there's only a few of us who do primarily psychodynamic psychotherapy. And um, yeah, I'm just really curious about what other programs do in, or kind of how they're, how they're, how they structure their training programs. Yeah. I, wait, as one example, you know, my program, we had that consortium thing and of the consortium. So these were like the super sought after spots, right? Everybody wanted that because you who doesn't want to graduate here early. Um, mm-hmm. and plus it like had a lot some other benefits, but within the consortium, there were zero programs that were psychodynamic. Mm-hmm. Like it was all CBT all the time, pretty much. Mm-hmm. As a clinician, what do you, what do you think we should do about that? <laughs> I, so I, I've been writing about this problem for a while and I'm, one of my goals, one of my career goals is to make psychodynamic psychotherapy and psychoanalysis more accessible to the public, mm. more accessible to other clinicians. So it's really a passion of mine. I'm wondering what you as a clinician are doing about this problem. I mean, I think so because I've been get, getting so immersed in emotionally focused therapy over the last couple of years, it's really been heartening for me to see that and and I'm sad that it's sort of limited to couples although that's not so much the case anymore it's starting to kind of Mm -hmm, spread mm -hmm. out but um it is you know very humanistic and and psychodynamic in origin in that it has a lot of attachment theory as its basis um and the the fact that that is so prevalent gives me hope like and that it has a very strong evidence base, right? The research is really good with regard to that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it has like a higher success rate than any individual therapy. So um, that also gives me some hope, right? I think there has been some pushback against identifying CBT as the only evidence-based therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of people doing like meta-analyses that prove that psychodynamic has been doing just fine this whole time. Mm-hmm. Um and of course, there's plenty of evidence that it doesn't matter, right? Which therapy school is that you do, as long as your mm-hmm. relationship is good and you have meet some other criteria. Um, so I think there is some pushback in the field in general against that. Um, 
And I think that like we've been doing this pendulum swing thing for all since psychology has existed, where like we have these arguments and then we come back to the middle and then we get swinged to the edges again and then we come back to the middle again and hopefully that will continue to be the case and that will stop swinging to the edge so much. Like one of the other factors I know you're aware of is like money, right? The reason that CBT got such a strong evidence base is because the studies are easy to fund, they're easy to do, and insurance companies like short-term treatment. They want to know that you can be done in 12 sessions or whatever, which does not happen very much. Um, and so any, any um, therapy that it pretends to meet that criteria is going to get funded and right like because mm -hmm. insurance companies don't want to spend the money for 20 30 40 sessions whatever it is mm -hmm. um and i think that's the thing that we need to address too and the only way i've really seen people addressing that is like by going away from insurance altogether and just mm -hmm. kind of doing sliding scales and things like that which I certainly can see why people do that. I'm not sure if it's enough or not. Yeah, yeah I'm certainly open to others talking to, on the podcast mm -hmm. or just kind of message, messaging me directly. I'm just really wondering about, you know, what we can do about this as a profession. Yeah. Um, I, I do have some anxiety about where psychology and therapy is going um i'm not sure what i'm going to do about it as an individual but i think collectively we can certainly do something about yeah. it like what's your anxiety about i think yeah i i think just you know training programs focusing more on cbt not allowing people to learn the techniques or kind of the theory behind psychodynamic mm -hmm. psychotherapy um i know our school has one class in particular that is required um, but it's just one that's required. It's not more. Um, I don't know about other programs, but we certainly don't get a whole lot of education about psychodynamic psychotherapy unless you go out and seek right. it, seek it out. Yeah. And that, that's concerning to me. I agree. Like my mm -hmm. program had like so four theory classes that were required, right? They had learning theory and psychodynamic and humanistic and mm -hmm. what was the other one? Family and systems. Um, and then the year that I left, there was a huge fight that I was on the wrong side. Of. I mean, I was on the right side, but we lost, um, where they were purport proposing to turn all four classes into one, which I was like, that is such a bad idea. Right. And as yeah. strongly as I feel about humanistic theory in general, and, and I'm a pretty big fan of psychodynamic theory too. Right, but I did not want to take that learning theory class. I thought it was stupid. I didn't want it, and I loved it. Like it was great. I had an amazing teacher who was passionate about it, and it really taught me a lot of things. And I never would have taken that if I didn't have to. Right, and it makes me really upset to think about like the same class being taught by the same person. Right, so the thing that was great was that the teachers that taught the classes were people who did that, right? And so they were very passionate about it and each one could really sell their topic because they loved that. And if you have one person mm -hmm. who's teaching all four things, probably at least three of which they don't do, 
then who's gonna fall in love with any of it right it's just yeah. it sucks mm-hmm. really concerns me too yeah I'm wondering you know when you were in your training did you were you were you out to your classmates were you out to the school yeah when you were when you were a like that part was pretty fine like mm-hmm. it's pretty you know east coast so we're pretty progressive in general mm-hmm. in most schools um mm-hmm. some of my supervisors were queer like it was it was never a thing mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. although like I did so I'm married to a man and so I did frequently like get assumed to be straight which was really hard mm-hmm. like especially because the the pulse shooting happened while I was in grad school and everyone was very shaken of course and like I really struggled with that day because people were talking about me like I was such a good ally you know and I'm like I'm not though you know like it just really it was hard I really felt like did I have a right to be as upset as I was and you know did I really belong there this group of grieving people and so that was that was kind of rough, just like that I generally have kind of passing privilege or whatever, and that's yeah. kind of a bummer. I don't really wish to pass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering, what about your program made you feel comfortable, kind of being out, being sort of true to your identities? There were faculty that were queer. That was pretty. Mm-hmm. There was one guy in particular who ran like the um the rainbow alliance like the club you know like he ran that group and he was very um extroverted (laughs) you know he just like wanted to know everyone Mm -hmm. he remembered everyone that ever came to one of the meetings and so he was always kind of really raising awareness and doing pride things and stuff um they did, I remember they did a, a thing every year for Pride where they would make this giant like rainbow cake and serve it in the student lounge and stuff. So like the, the, the program itself was kind of positive in general. Mm-hmm. Some of the faculty, like mm-hmm. I said, like, and there were quite a lot of students who were queer. So mm-hmm. it felt very safe and welcoming. And most of the, the classes like went out of their way to kind of address those issues when it was relevant to do that. We had a pretty good like diversity education just except for the fact that like they weren't very diverse, right? Like, but Mm -hmm. they tried, they tried to teach it. They just didn't have a lot of diversity in the student body. They had some in sexuality, but not so much in race or class. Mm -hmm. For programs who maybe aren't doing a great job right now being more inclusive what advice or what you know yeah I, I guess what advice would you have for those programs to really kick it kick it into high gear and maybe do better for their student population the best thing they can do is recruit faculty recruit students who come from those populations and like it's great to do mm-hmm. clubs and you know pride flags and what have you like all that is good stuff and to signify that on your website and whatever is great. Teaching diverse curriculum is also great, but none of that is even close to as good as having people from those populations that are actually there and like Mm -hmm. creating community. 
Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what other than that, really. Yeah, it seems like a hard, hard thing to integrate. Um, you know, if you aren't able to bring in that mm-hmm. student population, if you aren't able to bring in faculty, what mm-hmm. then? What what can what can programs do then to make sure that their program is more inclusive to to right. everyone? I think some of it is like looking at like, um, you know, the examples that you give, like when you're saying here's a couple that's in distress, you know, make it a queer couple or like not even a couple, mm-hmm. but like three people, right? You know, um, yeah. things like that. Like there's a lot of times when you use case examples so you can make your case examples be more inclusive in general. Um, you know, and there's there's plenty of curriculum out there. It's just a matter of, of teaching it. Um, mm-hmm. I think we did a good job with that. Like we they did a good job with that um of teaching kind of all kinds of different scenarios and things like when we would role play and stuff like that like it's just like little things where you would just assume that it would be a husband and wife or you would assume that they would be white and if you just assume otherwise right like that can make a big Mm -hmm. deal too Andrea, I have a few more questions yeah. for you. And these are the ones that are maybe took a little bit more thought. <laughs> but I'm wondering if you can share some of your hopes for the future. We're in the middle mm-hmm. of a pandemic, multiple mm-hmm. pandemics. I'm wondering if you can reflect and think about what your hopes are for the future and where you want to go next. The future of psychology or therapy. You can take it however, whatever direction you want to go with it. Everything I can think of to say sounds so generic, but I guess what I hope for most is empathy um, for us to be able to continue. I think we are on this path, but like to continue trying to see other perspectives than the one that we came from. Like, trying to question all of our biases and things like I think so much of the evil in the world comes from thinking that those other people are not like us whatever those other people might be right and so Mm -hmm. like getting to a point where we can not not realize we're the same but like realize that our differences don't mean the other people are less or not as human or not as whatever um that feels like it's really important to psychology it feels like it's really important to the world in general um and it's something that I that's one of my core values I guess that I really work to kind of disseminate in the world and talk about all the time is like stop othering people because it is like the root of all evil it really is Yeah, that's, it seems so salient right now to mm-hmm. not other, other people. And I'm very similar to you, Andrea. I, I also have been reflecting a lot on just the amount of frustration and anxiety I've been experiencing and kind of how I'm living my life currently. And I'm not, I don't always like it. And so I'm kind of thinking about ways that I can 
be more heart-centered and be more compassionate. I feel like before the program that I'm in, I was a very compassionate person and something Mm -hmm. changed. I think a lot of it has to do with the pandemic, but also just feeling like I'm going through the motions and not really paying attention to the people that I'm around. Um, So I, similarly, I feel like just really treating other people like people, um, you know, incorporating more compassion and empathy into my relationships, whether it's with other students or whether it's, you know, students that I'm teaching, whatever it might be. Where are you in your um, Mm -hmm. program? Yeah, I'm a fourth year. So I'm going on internship next year. So I'm currently in the application process. That is the worst. It is the worst time. (laughs) It really is. Like, I've never... It's not enjoyable, I will say that. I've never been prone to, like, (laughs) depression. It's never been a thing. Like, I've always been an anxiety person. Oh, my Mm -hmm. God. That last year, I thought... I was like, I don't care about any of this. People are stupid. Everything is dumb. Like, what is the point (laughs) of any of this? So, I don't envy that time. But there is hope around (laughs) the corner, I swear. (laughs) The yes, will end. And, and it, <laughs> yes I, I'm looking forward to that day when that happens. Oh, it sucks so much. I think it's very mm-hmm. admirable that you are both striving for that in your own personal life and mm-hmm. that you're like making this podcast to talk about all these things. I think that is so great. Mm-hmm. It's Yeah, it was certainly, certainly influenced the podcast and Laura and my interest in mm-hmm reading the podcast and talking to people who are people who are doing really cool things and getting outside of our silence yeah yeah that's great I I have one final question for you it's it's on the opposite end of the one I just asked you (laughs) so this podcast is about learning and educating ourselves Uh, with that in mind can you share one lesson that you learned maybe in the last seven months to a year and really how that lesson has impacted you and how you envision moving forward? I think these kind of questions are always very hard for me. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I did think about it and still haven't come up with a great answer, but I guess my best one is adapting, right? Like, it's been a really weird year for me. Like I went into private practice last October. Mm-hmm. So I just started like really ramping up right when everything went to hell. And um, and so then suddenly everything was teletherapy and that my new office was now useless. And like, you know, all the things that I had planned to do, I now couldn't do. And so um, it's been process of kind of adapting to that adapting to like my fear Mm -hmm. too in that I'm afraid of getting sick right like that is the big fear I've always had before this happened and now this there's this like legit threat like right out there Mm -hmm. you know it's really scary for me and it's been hard to kind of adapt to that threat being real and not just in my head if that makes any sense Mm -hmm. like I've always had that fear, but I've always been able to reassure myself like, well, you know, this is just your anxiety and that's not really happening, except now it's really happening. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's been a lot of adaptation, I guess, in general of kind of trying to make my goals still feel meaningful, um, trying to make my career still feel 
big and expansive, even though it takes place in this room pretty much always mm -hmm. now. Um, and trying to just like make it all make sense in this new context without letting it knock me mm -hmm. over. Right? It's been very hard. And I think everyone is going through that, you know, in different ways. A lot of people, you know, have had to put off or cancel like lifetime events, you know. Um, and you know, my sister got married a couple weeks ago, and there were like five people there, and not including me, right? And um, there's all kinds of things like that, and it could have meant that she didn't do it, or it could have meant that she was really disappointed with it, and she found a way to like make it be fun and make it be cool and. I think that's what we have to do when through all of this is try to find some joy in it and like not lose the things that bring us meaning in this time of like really scary situations all over the place. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's such a big deal and it could easily crush us like spiritually if we let it. So don't, yeah. I guess is my lesson. Thank you for sharing that. It's, it, it is refreshing to know that other people are also in the struggle. I don't think that was a secret necessarily, but just being able to verbalize it. And I, I, it, it's just really nice to know that we aren't in this alone. And we're kind of, I wouldn't say we're going in it together necessarily, but we're all experiencing something somewhat similar. So it was, it was nice yeah. to know that. Do you have any last thoughts, comments that you have before we end for today? You know, I just, um, I'm really grateful that there are people like you that are still kind of fighting the good fight as far as making, trying to make programs be more diverse and trying to make the field be integrative <laughs> instead of one thing or the other mm -hmm. thing. It's so heartening to know that and to, to, it makes me feel less alone too. Like I often felt that way in grad school that I was the only one who cared about this right and so it's really nice to see someone else care about mm -hmm. it so much it gives me faith too for our listeners i'm wondering where they can find you oh right um so on twitter i'm andrea j Medeiros. um that's pretty much everywhere but twitter is the place i actually like answer things <laughs> um and from there, you can get to the YouTube channel with all of the episodes about Gilmore Girls and relational conflict, mm -hmm. if that is your jam, which it should be, because, you know, what's more fun exactly. than relational conflict, I ask you? Exactly. Well, great. And we'll also put some of the information in the show notes for the episode as well. Um, but thank you so much for being on the, I really appreciate your time and um, your insights into Gilmore Girls. I wish we had more time to talk about it, honestly. Um, <laughs> I, I need to rewatch this, all of them. I, I think what I've learned from today's episode is I, I need to rewatch everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. Hello, Unconventional Dyad podcast listeners. We are so excited that you are joining the conversation with us. If you're liking what you're hearing and you would like to support the podcast, there are a few different ways to do that. We have a Patreon page now, 
So if you visit patreon.com slash unconventionaldyad, you can support us through four different support tiers. You can also support us through the Anchor app. There's a support function, and you can choose from three different tiers, from as little as 99 cents per month. We really hope that you are liking the content so far. You can also check out our website where we post weekly blogs that you can comment on, and we hope that you join in the conversation with us. Let us know what you think. Oh no.